Welcome to The Dental Brief, the world's direct, right-to-the-point podcast produced to get you the information you need to learn and grow your practice. To learn more about our guests and find links to information discussed on our show, visit our website, dentalbrief.com. On to today's episode. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Dental Brief. We have a great guest with us today. Um, experience is tremendous. We're so thankful to have her here. Uh, Karen Davis, go ahead and say good morning to our audience. Oh, good morning from Dallas, Texas. Yeah, welcome. We're, like I said, we're very glad to have you here. Um, For those of our audience who don't know you or haven't met you or seen you speak, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into the dentistry. Yeah, I love that question. So thank you for asking my background and how I found myself in the dental world, because it's really two factors. One was as a seventh grader, Texas Women's University had a traveling mobile career booth. They would go from school to school to school, and they would highlight certain careers. And the careers that they highlighted in the mobile booth that I went to were dental hygiene, radiology, med technology, and nursing. And so as an impressionable seventh grader, I thought, ooh, this sounds interesting, something in healthcare. And I already knew by that time, I absolutely wanted to avoid any career that had mathematics associated with it to any degree. So that was a really good option. And so that kind of started my thinking about healthcare and specifically, uh, I was leaning a little bit more toward med tech or dental hygiene. Those seemed interesting to me. And then my own dental hygienist, Laura, who practiced until she was in her late 70s, she was the one that really inspired me. So I, at one of my visits, inquired about dental hygiene, and it was like igniting a match. Once I asked her about her career choice, she couldn't stop talking about all the benefits of being a hygienist. And interestingly enough, she was grandfathered into dental hygiene in the state of Texas when it became a profession. She had been taught by her dentist and she was grandfathered in and she was an amazing clinician and just exuded all kinds of enthusiasm that really inspired me. So those two factors set me on the course and here I am today, still practicing. Yeah, that's, that's um, terrific. Now you do, like I mentioned uh, prior, you do speaking. Um, so you're, you're out there and, you know, non-COVID, I'm sure you're doing quite uh, uh, a bit of traveling, but you right. are in touch. Your ear is to ground is to the ground. Tell me some problems and challenges that you see um, that dentists and hygienists are having with patients in the chair. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I guess we would have to have a lot more time than we have today to really answer that question substantially. But there has been a common issue that I have seen, especially being able to work with patients as a clinician. And then I've also seen it as a trainer and a consultant. So I spent a lot of my career doing that as well. And so this is a common issue where patients might come into the practice and they sort of want to dictate their own treatment. They've obviously trusted you enough to be there today, but for whatever reason, when you make recommendations, let's say, for example, that they, you're, you're wanting to update their radiographs, or let's say that once a year you want to update their comprehensive periodontal assessment, or once a year, the doctor needs to examine the patient. That's 
actually law in most states, if you, sure. even as a dental hygienist, unless you're practicing independently completely, you're working under the purview, at least the general supervision of a dentist. And just a number of times patients will resist any of those kinds of recommendations for their treatment today. And so one of the issues is how do we handle patients that for whatever reasons today, they've decided they know better than you, even though you have the license to practice and they want to dictate their own treatment. Sure. I like to, you know, I, I, one of the things I see all the time is people talking about bite wings, right? Patient yeah. doesn't want them, doesn't want them, doesn't yeah. want them. And so that's a pretty common one. I think we're all pretty familiar with that. And I, and because it's so common, I'm sure our audience could use some help with that. But I, I do like to point out from time to time, and it's not always the most popular thing to say or to think, but um, oftentimes these problems that we see in dental practices and we see in healthcare are very similar to practices outside. So they don't just apply to the dentist. For an example, right. um, you know, I could see a dentist or a hygienist watching a carpenter build a cabinet in their house and kind of telling them how to build the cabinet, right? So it's not, it's a human nature issue, right? It's not just a healthcare issue in my For opinion. For sure. Yeah. So, so tell me, um, could, could we use the bite wings for an example? Can you, can we kind of talk why does the patient not want to do them? What are some common things in their mind? Um, what's kind of the psychology behind that? And then how do we, what are some steps that we can take to get better at convincing Yeah, yeah. I think radiographs is a really phenomenal issue to highlight because we've, we've all had that numerous times where the patients know I don't want them. And so one of the things that I kind of learned the hard way is that when I pull up the radiographs and I turn my back to my patient because I'm focused on my computer or I'm focused years ago looking at them when they weren't on the computer and I'm studying the radiographs and then I turn around to the patient and say, oh, everything looks great. If you repeat that ad nauseum time after time after time when you're taking their bite wings, what does that tell the patient? do I really need these? Everything always looks great. Right. And so one of the things that I finally realized sort of the hard way when too many of my patients were saying that to me is, huh, they don't have to be a radiologist to appreciate, but I can at least show them a comparison. Here's really dense bone. Now look at this area. Do you see how the bone is really not dense? Do you see how it's lower here than it is right. here? That's your jaw bone. That supports your teeth. That supports your face. That that supports your smile. We want to do everything we can to protect your jawbone. So we are looking intently at jawbone structure, anatomy, density every time we take these radiographs. Showing a patient, do you see this area here? Look at this shadow. Do you see this area that doesn't have a shadow? Do you know what this is? This is the earliest stage of decay. Do you know that we can actually intervene and reverse this process if, that's a big if, if we detect it early enough? It's one of the reasons we take the radiographs when we do, so that we are looking for ways to stop and halt the progression of disease where we can. So bringing the patient into that discovery of, of showing them what I'm looking at added a lot of value. And so to this day, I still, when I look at the radiographs, I will point out one or two things to emphasize value of what I'm looking for, show them what's going on in their own jawbone structure and their own mouth that they may or may not be aware of, probably not. And especially showing them things where they don't have symptoms that are going to give them early indicators of a problem. Right. So it sounds like setting them up properly could actually turn that patient who's reluctant now into someone goes, wait, 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 why aren't we doing my 
bite wings, right? Why aren't we looking at Absolutely. I've actually had that happen. And especially when I find something on the radiograph that confirms there is a problem, then suddenly now the value, because they didn't have any symptoms, they didn't even know they had a problem. Now the value is, okay, well, let's not let this slide again. So they're, they're no longer the patient that's saying, I don't want these. Everything's always okay. Now they really want to make sure that, did you need to go ahead and take those bite wings today, Karen, or do you need to take those x-rays? Yeah, so this is kind of a slippery slope on this question. Um, And I know, again, we have time constraints, so it's very difficult. But today, you know, so many people do diagnose themselves on the internet. And I think it can be a good tool. I, I actually think that people should embrace when a patient says, I read this, what do you think? That's great. They're asking you your professional opinion. And I think it's just really good that people in general are taking some, you know, the initiative when it comes to their health, right? So if they're online looking, yeah, they may find some really bad information out there, but at least they're actually making an effort. So I I actually think that's a good thing. So Mm -hmm. when you do hear things that are very, we could even say almost conspiracies, that people end up believing or buy into. How do you think we handle that? Because that's more of a psychology issue, isn't it, than an actual, because we're not dealing with facts anymore, right? Um, and I'm right. sure you've got to be seeing this more and more and more. Well, yeah. yes, absolutely. You're, you're highlighting. Like I said, yeah. Yes, you're highlighting another aspect <laughs> of pushback that we get from patients because they've read something that is perhaps erroneous, not not based on a true situation. So. What I've taught for years, when I did a lot of in-office training, I really focused on being an excellent communicator because at the end of the day, we can be a great clinician, but if we don't fail to communicate correctly with our patients, um, you know, they they don't leave any (laughs) smarter or any more well-informed about their own health decisions. So one of the things that I've taught for years that I've used for years myself is just little, this little acronym, B-E-A-T, how you beat an objection. So what you've just mentioned is a patient is throwing an objection out to me that they've heard somewhere else that, well, let's just use the whole fluoride thing, that fluoride is, is dangerous. And yeah. so I don't want any fluoride in my mouth today. So the B-E-A-T stands for body language. Any time a patient throws an objection at you, notice your body language. Is that patient in a supine position? And are you peering over them, working on them at that moment in time? If so, say, I hear what you're saying, Cindy. Give me just a moment. Let me finish what I'm doing. And I want to sit you upright and, and really hear what your concern is. You don't want to be hovering over them in all of your PPE gear and try and handle an objection like that. Um, secondly, you want to establish good eye contact, and that's part of that body language thing. You, you, and today, with all of our PPE, that's really all we have to establish. So, But that's a critical element. Get really good eye contact with your patient. And then the A stands for an agreement statement. So anytime, it doesn't matter whether it's about fluoride, it doesn't matter what it is. Anytime a patient says something to you that's an objection, whether it's legitimate, whether it's outrageous, you want to be on the side of that objection. How do you do that? Well, I would say, well, Patrick, I hear what you're saying. Sounds like you've read some information that really brings us forward. And you're, you're genuinely concerned about this. Is that correct? So what did I just do? I'm not trying to defend my position. I'm not trying to make you wrong and me right. I just agreed with you. 
So now, now we can have a dialogue. And then the last part of that BEAT is tone of voice. I have to be really cognizant of tone of voice. So much of effective communication is nonverbal. So I want to bring my voice level down. I don't want to be an octave higher because that's too excited. I want to be really clear. I want to be confident. I want to be concise. We aren't very good at being concise in dentistry. We think more explanation is better. Sure. (laughs) That's not true. Right. Less explanation is better. More listening is better. So BEAT, irrespective of what a patient throws at me, that's kind of my go-to strategy on how to handle objections. And that has served me very well through the years. Great advice. Appreciate it, Pete. It's great. Um, great acronym. Karen, I wanted to thank you so much for coming on the show. I want to tell our audience to check out your website. It's karendavis.net, correct? It is. Yeah, awesome. I want to, again, encourage our audience to go there, check it out. Um, we really appreciate you coming on today, Karen. Great information. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for joining us on today's episode. Did you know you can weigh in on today's topic on Facebook? Search The Dental Brief on Facebook or visit our website, dentalbrief.com, and just follow the link. We look forward to having you join us again on another episode of The Dental Brief.